here we have um, in Genesis uh, 43, if you could flip there, this story continuing as uh, Jacob and his sons um, are looking for uh, food. The famine is in the land. Uh, and Joseph has been positioned in a, an authoritative and influential role in Egypt. And as we left <clears throat> the picture last, we uh, saw that the brothers, Joseph's uh, 11 brothers, minus Benjamin, went down to Egypt to get food. And Joseph um, uh, treated them very harshly. And Joseph was able to recognize them as his brothers, but they could not recognize him. And so they only know him as some man who's making their life very difficult as they're uh, literally starving, uh, close to death, looking for food. Well, we pick up here as the story continues and the food has been dried up. It says, now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they brought, they brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had a brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to Israel's father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you, set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Then their father, Israel, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bag and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and the almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned to the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. The man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money which they had and they took Benjamin and they rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward of his house, bring the man into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. 
The man did as Joseph had told him and brought the men of Joseph, to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we brought in so that he may assault us, fall upon us, and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of the, Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came in the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money at the mouth of his sack and our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And it says, and he replied to them, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out, that brother that was held captive in Joseph's prison. And when the men had brought the men Joseph to the house and given them water to wash their feet, he had given them fodder for their donkeys, and they prepared a present for Joseph coming up at noon, knowing that they would eat bread with him. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the presents that they had prepared, and they bowed down to him on the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well, and he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said to the Egyptians, he said to them, serve the food. They served him by himself, then them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for it was an abomination, it was an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. And they drank, and they were merry with him. This man is introduced to them as the man. They don't know who he is culmination of our gospel, God's revealed will for all of history and humanity, ends in Revelation 20, where we're given a vision of a great white throne, bright white throne, white, it's perfect, it's pure, it's righteous, there's not a spot, there's not a blemish on this throne, and we're told that on this white throne there is one seated, one, there's a, there's a person seated on this throne, and from this throne We're told that heaven and earth fled, fled away from the throne. But there was a problem because there was nowhere for heaven and earth to flee. 
Because heaven and earth is everything. Where could everything find solace or comfort or hiding? Everything was made from this sovereign dominion, the throne of God. And on the day of judgment, it will be a place of, well, uncomfortability. Given to the expression that even heaven and earth would not like to be there at that time. But all heaven and earth, which involves you and I, we exist in that domain called the heavens and the earth. Choice phrase in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that's ever been made is constituted within the heavens and the earth. And the heavens and the earth want to flee the great, white, righteous throne, judgment of God. But they cannot because there is nowhere else to go. For there is nothing else than the heavens and the earth. But we're told and on that judgment seat is not just the judgment of God. There's a man sitting on that seat. A man sitting on the seat that judges all of heavens and earth, Jupiter to Mars, a man. How remarkable is that considering you and I can't travel the planets independently? Why would a man have the right to judge the heavens and the earth? We're barely free enough to walk to our cars without slipping on ice this afternoon. How remarkable is this judgment throne? This new phrase um, that I heard once uh, two, three years ago was whataboutism. Uh, in, in the news, people were talking about it because they were like, well, what about Trump colluding with Russia? And, well, that's, that's not an issue because what about Hillary's emails that everyone is looking for? Um, well, here's the thing about the judgment. It doesn't work. Sitting on the judgment. See, when, when politicians particularly are put into a pressure chamber, they revert to, well, what about this? And they divert. And they look here. And they look there. Don't look at me. Well, if I didn't make a mistake, what about that mistake you made? And the judgment throne. There is a man sitting on that seat. You never get to say, well, what about? You don't know what it was like to live be tempted by sexual sins, it's hard. Why would you judge me? And then Jesus will say, what about it? I've been tempted in every way, yet without sin. There will be no escape. There will be no excuse. There will be no diversion. This man sitting there Perfect white throne. Blazing eyes to see, to know, to question. Do you notice the brother's uncomfortable? Jacob says, why do you do this to me? Why did you tell the man that there was a younger brother named Benjamin? Because then Joseph says, you cannot come back down here unless you bring your younger brother here. And they said, well, this man was judging us. He was questioning us. He was cross-examining us. He wouldn't leave us alone. He asked about us. He asked about you. He asked if we had any other brothers. He was getting into all of our lives and we were uncomfortable and we had to press him and we had to answer him. And he is the man. He is the most powerful man in Egypt, save the Pharaoh. When he asked us a question, we had to respond. How would we know that he was going to command Benjamin to come down? That is 
the judgment. This is the throne. But God has done this in such a way to shut us up that every mouth should be stopped and the whole world held accountable in Romans 3. Accountable to God. But not accountable to a throne with a scroll sitting on it, you see. Not accountable to an impersonal code or system of ethics and law like all other man-made religions. Accountable to a man who sits on that throne as a law unto himself of perfect righteousness and holiness actualized in the real world. A practical righteousness. A real righteousness. A life that was lived in perfect communion and holiness before God consummated and entering into eternal glory to sit there and say, I have completed real righteousness. A constitution can be amended or ignored. A king cannot. What if the righteousness were in his own veins? What if he was that perfect law of righteousness? A constitution, a law, a document cannot cross-examine your conscience. But the living and true God can. This great white throne... A man, he has completed this. And we have all sinned and fallen short of this glory. You see the glory that Jesus entered. The glory of life, everlasting resurrected life. Was the glory that we could never have had. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree of life that we were never permitted to eat. We've never found food like that before. No one has ever found bread that leads to everlasting life. No one has ever found that tree that was described in the garden. And that is the force, you see, that is drawing all people toward this throne. We're told that the famine was severe in the land. That is, no one found that tree yet. Everyone's very hungry, and if they don't eat, they're going to die. They have eaten all the grain we're told that they bought in Egypt. And Jacob, already we know, determined that they would never go back down. I would never let my sons go back down to Egypt to take Benjamin like the man wants. Because if they take Benjamin and I lose Benjamin, my gray hair will go down to Sheol in grief, he says. I will be bereft beyond consolation. And that's how we left the story. Last chapter. Last week. And the next verse over, Jacob's hungry. You see the force of this judgment throne? That his fatherly decree is, my children will never go back down to Egypt. And then he runs out of food. And he says, go again. And sheepishly, you hear the phrase, buy a little bit more food. He says a little, just a little bit. Why? There is a force, there is a draw of life that has to come under the decree of God. See, he thinks we'll never go back down to Egypt, back down, down the metaphor of death, going down to Egypt where I could lose my sons and where we could all be down in Sheol. Say that if you want, but you will. Say you'll never eat again. 
In 48 hours, you'll be thinking about it. There's a force, there's a draw to our creatureliness that we must come back to the source of our life and we cannot get away from it. The same way Jacob can't get away from Egypt. Go buy a little bit of food. We're starving here. I know what I said about Benjamin, but just go. There's some draw to this way God has oriented his judgment throne. The drawing and the force. Oh, heaven and earth try to flee away and they cannot. Jacob and his sons are trying to stay out of Egypt and they cannot. They have to go back down. Jacob needs bread. The emptiness of his words is outmatched by the emptiness of his stomach. And you and I are all the same. We must rely on the mercy of God. You see, here was um, Judah's response. He says, um, it's all about the man. The man. That man's there. It's a nondescript term. It's intentional. It's obvious. It's obvious in the fact that it's not obvious to them. Who is this man? Don't know, but he didn't like us last time we were there. And he's the man, for sure. He has all the power and authority in Egypt. He says this, Judah responds, The man warned us not to return without Benjamin. He said, You will not see my face if you go down there without Benjamin. And Jacob responds, why did you treat me so to tell the man that you had another brother like Benjamin? And Judah responds by saying, the man questioned us very carefully, very, very carefully. And Jacob then responds, go then, fine. But may God grant you mercy before the man, whoever this man is. Now the beautiful gospel, you see, and this is the beginning of connecting it to say, they don't know who this man is. But you and I do. Inside of their fear, inside of their condemnation, is ignorance. What if the man is Joseph? It changes the whole story. The whole drama is lost. The whole fear of judgment. The whole fear of death. The man, he's just the man right now. The man. And Jesus warns, people who don't know him are in this exact situation. Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, double, double, I've been saying your name. I know your name. You're the Lord. You're the Lord. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. To me and you, I'm just the man. You don't know me. You don't know my personal name. You don't know me like the brothers would know Joseph. You don't know me. Depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. Not knowing God's law, not knowing Him. This lack of knowledge is what makes the judgment throne so fearful. To play and play upon our conscience. But... To know him more than just the man. To know him more. That's the difference. I never knew you, Jesus said. We uh, were, um, I didn't have this in my notes. It came to my mind at the moment. Just think it's helpful. Preaching the gospel a little bit yesterday out on a, in a public place. And the man uh, was kind of watching the door to this one place. And he said, um, Oh, I'm with you guys. Like, I, 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 resisting, like the police were there. They were kind of resisting like the speaking of the gospel. 
but I am with you guys, even though I'm not. Right? Why? He said, well, the Lord's my shepherd. I said, okay, so when you say Lord, what do you mean by that? And I entered into a great conversation. But the idea of saying, that word you're saying, I don't think it means what you think it means. You're calling him Lord. But many will say, Lord, Lord. Many will see him as the man. But who is this man? Who is Jesus Christ? That's the answer to it all. If you know that answer, you know the beginning from the end. And the day of judgment is the day of life and resurrection. Two great phobias are present. We find in Jacob this phobia that you and I, this fear that rots our bones if we have not the gospel, is the fear of death. Jacob is framed in by this. And the brothers are particularly framed in by, yes, of course, death, but condemnation. That with them, there is this, they're the ones that are always being examined or cross-examined by Joseph. And, and they are feeling guilty in their conscience. The first time they encountered Joseph and the problems that were happening in their life back in chapter 43 uh, uh, or 42. They particularly said, it is because of what we did to our brother Joseph that God has had this man fall upon us like this. They are riddled with their conscience. But see, Jacob is worried about death. See, he uses the word, Jacob's the one throughout Genesis who uses the word Sheol regularly. Going down to Egypt. Going down to Egypt is a type of death. It is going down to a place where you might not return. Last time the brothers went down to Egypt, Simeon didn't come back, you see. That is the reality of our death for all of us. Some people go down. We all have to go down. And the whole point of death is you don't get to come back. Except for Jesus. Hint. Benjamin. He says, I will not let Benjamin go down. Why? Because Benjamin might not come back. See, Egypt is a type of death to Jacob. It's a death you can't return from. And he says, if Benjamin goes down, I will go down to Sheol with my old gray hairs. That is, I will die with his death. The last time he said that was when he lost his most precious son, Joseph. They presented to Joseph this tattered garment mixed with blood and said, examine this. Is this your son's? So surely wild animals have destroyed him. That is, Joseph has not been properly buried. He is not in a pit somewhere. He has not been given burial rites. Because sometimes Sheol refers to a six-foot hole in which you bury people. But other times, Sheol in the scriptures refer to a spiritual realm of the dead. And so it's impossible to interpret the passage as meaning the hole that you go into, the pit. Because Jacob's under the impression that Joseph was mutilated and eaten by animals. And then he says this, I will surely go down to Sheol with him. He's referring to that place of death. The shadowy underworld of departed souls. That I will go down there with him. Jacob is all about death and fear of death and losing his loved ones in death. And so Judah offers him this false peace. This false peace that we often speak to ourselves regularly. Judah said, I'll take him. I'm one of your brothers, one of his brothers, I'm one of your sons. I can do it. I'll take Benjamin down. And here's the deal. I'll make myself a guarantee. I pledge, I pledge for Benjamin's safety. This is wild talk. This is crazy talk. This is the way everybody approaches death in this life. It's okay, we all have to die. I'll get by. How do you know that? 
He took Simeon last time, and Judah says, you know what, take Benjamin with me, I'll bring him back. Well, why wouldn't he just take you too? How could this be a surety, a guarantee of safe passage through Egypt? This is the way people approach death. They think you just go through it, because everyone goes through it. That's not a confidence for anything. And so Jacob returns and says, Instead, I think I'll trust in the Lord. Verse 14, he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Whoever that man is, he must be a cruel man. He's taken one of my sons. May God grant you mercy before the man. But Judah, you're going to need that mercy too, because he might take you as well. You're no surety for anybody. But the brothers in reverse are framed in by condemnation. They're invited to his house and they respond and say, it's because we didn't pay for the food. Because the first time they came down, they took all their grain in their sacks with their money bags inside. And in full weight, they didn't pay a penny for that bread. It was free life, grace given to them. And it unnerved them. The idea that the gospel makes people uncomfortable is that God has given you life. Yeah, I can't believe that. You know, your sins are forgiven. No, I still feel guilty and convicted of my sins. No, it is free. The money's there. Keep it. You're alive. And see, they don't have that mindset. There's no way this man gave us money for free. There's no way the man, the faceless, nameless man, could give me free food. He had a plan. He was framing us. He's trying to get us. See, he's invited us to his house so that he will fall upon us, that he would judge us and enslave us and even take our donkeys. Why not? They're thinking through all of this because they don't understand grace. What if the man on the throne is more loving than you? What if he's more loving than anything you've ever experienced in this life? What if he's just not the man? What if he's your brother? What if he's your own flesh and blood? They have no knowledge of this. They have not seen the gospel yet. But they're becoming dangerously close to approaching this great, awesome, fearful, white throne of grace. Grace. Soaked with tears. Joseph's own tears of compassion. These men know nothing. They are wicked men. They don't know but God is teaching them, as he's probably taught many of you. This fear of death and condemnation. <clears throat> they come close to this man. And in closing, we'll see three ways in how they find him to be the beauty of Jesus Christ. See Jesus this morning. Like Christ, Joseph is the man. He's greater than all other men. He said, how is your father? Do you know how they responded? Your servant and our father as well. How remarkably offensive. Many pass the gospel up because of that way of thinking. In the regular context, in every way you want to measure it, 
Joseph is greater. He's greater than everyone else in Egypt. He's greater than all the other nations because Egypt is a great nation. He's certainly greater than a goat herder named Jacob. So in that context, they say to the man, how is your father? Our father, your servant, he is well. The father of Joseph is below him. Servant of him. What a context. What a prophecy. Psalm 110. David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. How is David the greatest king? How are his, his child, his prophetic child to come? How, why would David speak of his child as Lord? In Psalm 110. That's not how patriarchy works. The offense of Jesus Christ. Going to the Pharisees. When he speaks about Abraham and says, Abraham, Avraham, father of the many. Great father. Before that father was, Jesus says, I am. Oh, they were incensed by that. Just as much as his brothers were. That this little runt, this little Joseph should get the multicolored tunic. That this little Joseph should be preeminent above us all. But here now they are before his throne, confessing, Oh, we are your servants, and even your own father who should be greater than you is your servant. Because all are greater than you, for you are Joseph. You see? The offense of the gospel. Oh, the gospel is always good news because God is love. Yes, but... He is great. He is the great man. He must be taller than you. He must be stronger than you. He must be wiser than you. He must be righter than you. And if you cannot say that, you do not know the gospel. You have been offended. He has altered your birth order, your birthright, your dignity, your self-made, man-made systems of righteousness. He comes in and breaks it all. That's why Joseph got in trouble. He broke the pecking order of the brothers. He broke the firstborn birthright. He was better than them all, but he was younger and should not have been more preeminent than them all. And that is the offense of Christ. This carpenter from Nazareth is the ruler of the world from which all heaven and earth shall cease to flee. But they cannot, for he made all heaven and earth. That is so offensive. So offensive that we should just nail him to a cross as we threw Joseph in a pit. These oracles was always God's plan. To disrupt the systems of men through the humility of the glory of Christ. Like Christ, Joseph is the man who knows all other men. That birth order that got Joseph in so much trouble, that offended all his brothers, you see what he did when his brothers came? Put him in perfect order. He knows what he's doing. They don't know him, he knows them. This puts them on edge. Does this man have some sort of divination? He doesn't know us, but he managed to lay us out perfect in order. From the oldest to the youngest. They're in the judgment seat of God, they feel. And then, who gets five portions? The compassion of Jesus Christ. That it was the little Benjamin, five. Outdoing the order, outdoing the thing that makes sense. So that there would be a time in which we're told it is not appropriate for Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. 
And they're astonished because this man shares from his table his food to these Hebrews. While the Egyptians are over here eating them by themselves. And you pause and they look at his judgment throne. And under their breath is, is this man like us? Is he a Hebrew like us? Why would he share food with us? The Egyptians won't even eat with us. Do you see next week when we take communion? What has been done? That he has invited you to that table? That he is not, it is not an abomination for God to eat with you, a sinner? Do you see what this man has done? He's laid it all out for you that the whole world is in a famine right now. The reason they're in Egypt is because there's a famine and people are dying. And they are in this throne room. We're told the last verse is they're eating and feasting in the famine. That is the gospel. That the throne is a throne of grace. That he, your own brother, is not ashamed to eat with you. Remember though, he turned away from Benjamin with those tears. We, we went long because of the members and I ask you this to think. That, that grief that Christ has is real. It's not cheap grace. If you and I could import ourselves into Joseph's context, you have been thrown in a pit. They flirted with just killing you and decided it would be more pragmatic to sell you for money. They put you down in Egypt and you suffered greatly for many years. You have all authority and power. Your brothers are before you and you cry because it hurts. You see, we say, Jesus, he saved me. He went to the cross. Yes. And it really hurt. It wasn't free. It wasn't cheap. And he should not, even though we preach it every week, he should not let us go. These brothers should not be eating with him. We're so saturated in grace that we forget what it really is. They should be in prison. They should. And he all that comes out of it Tears. These tears, he turns away, he saves his face, and compassion boils up within him. He has to leave because the it says that boiling you could translate it as compassion, turmoil turned within him. He had such love that he had to leave to come back to compose himself. That is the gospel, my friends. And do you see? God has always planned it this way. He has laid it out for you now to have it, to receive it by faith. The righteousness by his blood he has made a propitiation to be received by faith. Take it and his countenance will fall upon you. And his great white throne will be a great white throne of light and love because you know the name of the man who sits on that throne. And his name is Yeshua. Yahweh saves. That's the name. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would build us up in this truth, that we would not be weak, but strong. Strong in love, having resources to forgive and to forget like Joseph. 
having resources to be moved with compassion and passion in our life to make your name great. You're worthy of all praise, Lord. You have saved us. You've chosen to eat with us. Many have prejudicial reasons for not eating with others. Lord, we thank you that you're not a man like many. Amen.